0: On this
1: computer. And oh, it's recording. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Hi. Uh, What are we up to? We're up to episode four now of the Dear John stories. Uh, I'm Micah and this is Eric. Hello. Um, We just finished up putting uh, episode three up online, which we recorded about 18 months ago. and uh it's interesting because that episode had a lot of stories about death. And just towards the end, we both said, uh well Eric said, I hope John gets a chance to listen to this story and talk about it with us. And then uh in that 18 months since actually dear John uh has passed away. Um he didn't die from the condition he was in hospital with when we were recording the podcast. That was just because he's hip was busted up, so he couldn't move around. and They needed to keep him in there. Uh, he had a little bit of heart failure occur and, uh, and has uh, since left us. Uh, but I figure that these stories are a nice thing for people to listen to, so I asked Eric uh, if he felt like we could uh, continue recording them even without the express purpose of giving John some entertainment in hospital.
2: Yeah, I think it's a very nice thing to do uh you know perhaps in a a different context now but still in in memory in relation to john so i was really glad to revisit it um and and it was quite uh i guess difficult to listen back to you know how we're talking about the situation and all that kind of stuff but uh yeah i'm glad that we can actually come back together and, and do this i think it's uh it it was something that I really really enjoyed and and I thought uh, it was such a beautiful way to to connect with John and and I I don't see why it still can't be something that it still can be something that is a beautiful way to connect with John. Um, Sure connect with other people and humanity
1: as a whole that's what stories are about right? Hmm. Showing us each other's perspectives and all those sorts
2: of things. Maybe it's also important to mention that we're actually recording this in the time of COVID as well uh, which is Uh, going to affect the sound quality uh, in that now I am way closer to the microphone so you'll be able to hear me clearly. (laughs) And I will still continue to talk loudly, uh,
1: much (laughs) to the annoyance of everyone I know. Uh, Now we actually, we tried uh, recording an episode last week and uh, we recorded, I'm going to record, we're going to record the same stories again. We're going to do a re-recording which is a, a first for us, Uh, obviously we've only got three episodes out so no one cares. But we're gonna do a re-recording. And the reason for that is uh, we just, we we listened back to the first few episodes and we enjoyed the the conversations so much. And we felt like there wasn't as much of a spark of conversation. And it's funny because since then we had lots of conversations like, oh, this is much better. And (laughs) it turns out it's probably my fault because I'm quite often at the moment during COVID home alone. And so, uh, the only conversations I have in my head, uh, me chastising myself or telling myself I'm doing really well, pretty much. That's it all
2: day. So it, is that to say, Micah, that I should either be chastising you or telling you that you're doing very well in this I mean, recording? that pretty
1: much sums up our conversations anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, uh, I, I just think, uh, we wanted to give it another go and see how that goes. Um, unfortunately that means that like, uh, the, my first story, Eric, Eric's not going to be surprised by any of the twists and turns, but it does mean that he'll be able to pay attention to some other stuff and bring up some interesting things. And if he forgets to talk about the embarrassing things he talked about last time, I will bring them up.
2: No <laughs> oh, <worries>. no. <laughs> um, I have to say, I actually do not remember what we talked about the first time. Uh, I, I guess in that way, I will still be surprised. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, I reckon we, could, uh, we can jump into it now. We've introduced that we're doing the podcast again and that Dear John has passed on. Um, basically, for anybody that's uh, new to the podcast, we just read out some short stories. Uh, each week so far, it's been one that I've written and then one that I've uh, selected to read for Eric and then we discuss those stories. Uh, and that's basically the format. So without any, uh, any more delay... I'm going to uh, read, read the first story, uh, which I've decided to title, Spit, with an exclamation point. Okay? Exclamation mark. It's, a, it's not
2: a point. Sorry. All right. <laughs> we have to re-record this episode now, I'll start again from the beginning. All right. Start again from the beginning. Here we go. <laughs> Spit.
1: The pain in my tooth had been keeping me awake at night. I didn't feel like eating and was continually overwhelmed by nausea. It had started hurting a little over a month ago, but I'd ignored tooth pain before and it had just gone away. I was too busy with work, birthdays, and all the other things. Besides, going to the dentist always fills me with dread, thinking how expensive it will be. As I lay in bed, trying to press my tongue against the offending tooth in hope of relief, while simultaneously trying to forget about the pain altogether, and the whole time wishing for sleep, knowing the hard day of work I had ahead of me in the morning, I decided to book in for a visit to the dentist. Apart from some emergency dental work done in a surgery across the road from the shop I was working in seven years ago, when I'd had a repaired tooth crack and had shards of tooth hanging and swaying in my gums. The last time I'd actually booked to see a dentist was as a teenager, and Dad had booked it in for me and paid for it. I got out of bed, and splashed some cold water on my face, trying to numb the pain. The next day, I asked around with friends and many had similar stories of avoiding dental treatment, some for money, others from fear. Finally, I had a friend recommend a small dental practice in the city that he'd been to when he'd needed a crown done. I took their number and gave them a call. The receptionist listened patiently and allayed my fears. She assured me that they had many adult clients who hadn't seen a dentist in years, that they would examine me and let me know how much any procedures would cost and they wouldn't spring anything expensive on me all at once. The tooth continued to bother me at all hours of the day leading up to my appointment. I took to eating slightly warmed up soup as I found it painful to have anything too hot or too cold or too hard or too soft in my mouth. For some reason, Two hours before the appointment, I brushed my teeth six times, flossed and gargled with a newly purchased bottle of Listerine. It was as though I wanted the dentist to think I was a good, diligent toothbrusher who had simply been a victim of misfortune. It was like I needed their approval, even though I hadn't met them yet. My gums bled a little, unused to the rough treatment from the floss, and I sucked the blood down as I travelled in a cab, hoping the bleeding would stop before I sat in the dentist's chair. I went up in a small lift and walked to the door with a large picture of a smiling tooth. I sucked in my breath, feeling the raw pain in my gums, and entered into a white-walled, brown-carpeted waiting room. The receptionist behind the desk was neat, calm, and professional, while I felt my nervousness rising. She explained to me that there had been a bit of overbooking that day, so the appointment might be a little delayed, and the dentist may need to treat multiple patients at once. I sat down on a cushioned bench, decided against reading any of the magazines lying on the table, and stared at the awful poster of healthy human gums that was on the wall across from me. There were a few other men spread through the room, but no one looked ready to spark up conversation, no doubt worrying about their own imminent dates with destiny. When called upon, I was shown to a small, stark room with a large reclining dentist's chair in the middle of it that had one of those lamps that looks like it's used for interrogation standing beside it. Please, said the dentist, take a seat. I explained my trouble to the man and he nodded his head, smiling broadly the whole time, his perfect teeth shining. He directed me to lie back as he reclined the chair and opened my mouth. He switched the light on and I squinted my eyes, not wanting to close them in case he pulled out a drill. Just relax, he said. We'll soon see what the trouble is. A female assistant soon entered the room and helped the dentist prepare some mouthwashes and sterilise some tools. Even though I wasn't being threatened, I felt incredibly stressed and uneasy. After some whining, scraping, pulling and prodding, the dentist tuttered, moved the light out of my eyes and stood up. He let me know that I needed to take better care of my teeth and gums, Explained some things about cavities to me, and then at some point he said the words I'd been hoping for. Sedation.
0: I breathed in the gas and closed my eyes.
1: I woke up with a strange taste in my mouth and could feel thick saliva dripping all the way down from my mouth to my neck to my shoulder. I looked around, but there was no one else in the room with me. I wondered where the dentist and his assistant had gone. I figured he was probably treating another patient. So I lay my head back and tried to unfog my thoughts. I needed to go to the bathroom. I got up from the chair. All my joints felt stiff and weird. I couldn't feel my mouth. My tongue felt heavy. I tried to walk to the door, but I stumbled and had to hold onto the wall. I opened the door and walked out into the corridor that led off from the waiting room to the treatment rooms. I figured the toilet must be down the other end of the corridor. So I walked slowly, keeping my hand, brushing the wall to steady myself. I walked through a door I thought was the bathroom and realized I'd walked into another treatment room. There was no one in the room, but one of the walls had another doorway in it to the side. Maybe that was where the toilet was. I walked through the doorway and started down a cement staircase. The light in here was different, flickering. I turned a corner and stood in shock at what I saw in front of me. Candles lined the wall. The dentist and his assistant were dancing naked, except for face masks around a chair made of teeth. Strapped in that chair was a man whose mouth was being clamped comically wide. Blood was pouring over his bottom lip. Next to him, on top of a podium, also built of teeth, sat a silver tray, and on that was what must have been his severed tongue. I wanted to run, but I stood frozen to the spot. The dentist noticed me first and stopped his dancing. He looked straight at me and then turned his gaze slowly around the small room, inviting me to follow with my own eyes. On the walls were hundreds, thousands of teeth, shriveled up tongues and lips were dried and stuck between the teeth, which I now saw were arranged in intricate patterns with some even spelling out words in what looked like Latin or ancient Greek. In one corner of the room, was a slowly turning old red and white barber's pole on a short metal stand. In another corner, there were two severed human heads. Both of them looked like they'd had the jawbone fiercely ripped off. I wanted to scream, but I still couldn't feel my mouth properly. I didn't know if my tongue would move, even if I tried. I started to think about running when I felt something stab into my leg and at the same time something covered my face.
0: I woke up back in the reclining
1: dentist chair. My mouth still felt numb. There we go. I told you he'd wake up just fine, said the dentist. My assistant here got worried when you started thrashing about after we gave you the nitrous. But I assured her that sort of thing can happen. Quite normal, quite normal. You'll probably want to rinse now. The assistant, fully dressed in dental scrubs, handed me a plastic cup. I looked at it suspiciously, but my mouth did feel like it needed to be emptied. I poured some of the liquid in my mouth. It tasted weird and metallic. That's it. Now swish it around and spit it out into the basin here. The dentist sounded completely calm. I swished the liquid in my mouth and leaned over and tried to spit into the basin, but dribbled half of it down my chin. That's okay. Happens a lot. People feel a little strange after the anesthetic. Just take your time, and then you can head back out to reception, the dentist said softly. I wanted to ask what had happened how long I had been out for. If I'd really seen the man in front of me naked, I was confused and uncertain. I opened my mouth. My lips felt like dust and I slowly managed to croak. What happened? How long was I unconscious? I thought I went to find the bathroom. I said, confusedly. Ah, yes, you did have a bit of an accident in that regards. It doesn't happen often. We can help you with that. I'm sure we have a pair of pants around somewhere you can borrow. You did try to get out of the chair at one point while I was holding a drill near you too. I could picture it. I imagine the dentist pushing the drill through my tongue and telling me not to speak.
0: You didn't drive, did you? It took a
1: while before I felt like I could stand. My legs felt nearly as numb as my mouth. I was embarrassed when the assistant brought me a pair of jeans to change into. They were a little large for me, but would do to get home. I felt so groggy and confused. I headed out into the corridor and was about to head to the waiting room to see the receptionist. When I stopped, turned and looked down the corridor. The light in one of the other rooms seemed to flicker strangely. The dentist grabbed me by the shoulder. This way. And don't worry, if you have any problems in the next couple of days, just let us know and we'll free up some space for you he said cheerfully. The ride home made me feel car sick and I got the driver to pull over twice, worried that I'd vomit. I was aching and numb, a weird combination. I decided to have a glass of water, get under the covers and watch a movie. My mind wandered as I saw a sunset over an old western town and for some reason I could clearly see the face of the receptionist from the dental clinic looming over me. Her mouth was full of teeth and she started spitting them painfully into my face.
0: I sat up, sweating and
1: worried. I must have been allergic to the sedatives. I had been dreading the visit for weeks, but none of my anxieties about it had been this graphic. I went to the bathroom and splashed some water in my face. My mouth looked like it looked a little swollen, and my eyes looked very tired. I went back to my room and caught my foot on the jeans I'd borrowed from the dentist. I picked them up, roughly folded them as I hung them on the back of a chair, Something fell out of the pocket. It was an office security pass that must have been in there. It belonged to Simon Exley. I looked at the photo of Simon and froze. In the photo, Simon Exley was staring straight ahead with a look of boredom. But in my mind, his eyes were rolled back, white, in pain and fear, and his mouth was clamped open, dripping with blood. I was sure I'd seen this man in the raiding room and then again in that strange tooth-covered room if I'd seen him. Why was his security pass in the pants I'd been given? It all seemed too terrible. But it couldn't have been. (coughs) I must have seen him in the waiting room, and that's why his face was in my horrid imaginings. He must have dropped the security pass, and it must have accidentally been put in the jeans before he'd been given them. Probably all dentists keep a few spare clothes around in case patients ruin theirs by accident. I went back to bed and lay there hoping for sleep. After what seemed an eternity, it came. It was only a few days later that I started having a pain in my mouth again. Not in the same tooth, but one just next to it. I didn't want to go back to the dentist. Even if I did need to return the jeans and the security pass, I was having trouble concentrating at work and even more trouble relaxing at home. After a couple of days, I knew it was no use. I'd have to visit a dentist. I felt that maybe I'd feel better going somewhere different to the last time. After all, I was still having nightmares and occasional daymares involving too many teeth, not enough clothes, and a slowly spinning barber's pole. I picked up the phone, and just as I was going to call a friend to get the number for their dentist off them, something changed my mind. And I decided to call the previous clinic and ask if they had any spare appointments. I was lucky they had one free that afternoon. After all, he had said they'd free up space for me. I went up in the small lift. And this time, noticed that the smiling tooth on the door itself had teeth. And I wondered then if they had faces on them with smaller teeth. And if they had faces on them with smaller teeth. And I was staring straight at the door when it opened. A small man walked out with tears streaming down his face. I watched him walk up and press the button to call the lift.
0: The waiting room was empty this time. The
1: receptionist greeted me and asked me to take a seat and told me the dentist wouldn't be long. I could feel teeth dropping on my face and lightly scratching my skin. I placed the jeans with the ID card in the pocket on the reception desk, but felt too ashamed to say anything about them. I went and sat down and I grabbed at the magazines, but was shaking too much to read one. I stared at the healthy human gums on the poster and imagined them bleeding ink, black blood. The receptionist left the room and came back a few minutes later. She told me it was time to see the dentist and led me into the corridor this time I was taken to a room at the end as she opened the door I could picture the other doorway filled with candlelight and stairs leading down but when the door was opened, the wall I saw had no doorway and instead held a light box the sort used for viewing x-rays I must have been staring at the wall for a long time because the dentist coughed and asked me if I was going to come in I should have coughed then instead of coughing in between paragraphs of women. <coughs> Right. There we go. There it is. (laughs) I must have been staring at the wall for a long time because the dentist coughed and asked me if I was going to come in. I apologised and explained that my tooth was giving me pain and I hadn't been sleeping well and I was feeling a little strange. The dentist assured me that it's perfectly normal to be a bit out of it when our mouths weren't healthy. And that's one of the reasons why regular dental visits are important. I sat in the chair and told him where it hurt. His assistant came in and I found it hard not to picture her naked. I could imagine her running the handle of a scalpel between her legs. The dentist asked me to lie back and open my mouth wide. I told him I didn't want any anesthetic this time. He laughed and gently pushed my head back, opened my mouth and put his fingers between my lips and my gums. It was going to need just a simple filling this time. The dentist told me he could do it without anesthetic if I wanted, but almost all patients would prefer it with at least some amount of local anesthetic. Are you afraid of needles? He asked. I told him I wasn't afraid of needles. I just didn't want what happened last time to happen again. I grabbed the front of my pants in a way I hadn't done in public since I was a small boy. That won't be a problem with just a few needles directly into the nerves and into the gums, the dentist explained. It's only a small procedure and will be over before you know it. I agreed to have the local anaesthetic and the dentist sent to work. It didn't take long and my mouth wasn't nearly as numb as it had been the first time. It just felt huge on the side where the sore tooth had needed filling. There, said the dentist, much less trouble than last time. The dentist looked at his assistant and winked. She giggled. I stared at the light box on the wall, sure that I'd see it slide aside, but it didn't move. Can I go now then? I asked. Of course, replied the dentist. We're not going to keep you here. We don't strap you down in these chairs. I froze again. The dentist laughed. The assistant laughed. I tried to laugh. It's funny, I started. I know a lot of people are afraid of the dentist, and I sort of always was, but mostly about the money. The money? Echoed the dentist. Yeah, the money. I I said that was until last time I came here. After I passed out, well, while I was passed out under the... I thought some strange stuff. I thought I came in this room, and I I thought there was a doorway where that wall is leading down to this horrible little room. And the dentist got up and walked over to the wall. A door here, he asked, and tapped the x-ray light box. I wanted to reply, but as I opened my mouth, he tapped on the wall and it popped forward and slid aside, revealing a doorway. Like this? I didn't know what to do.
0: I sat up. What's going on? I squealed.
1: Lie back down and I'll tell you, he replied. I looked over at the door to the corridor, but it was being blocked by the assistant. Lie back down, or I will make you, he said firmly. I lay back down in a panic. I'm going to make you an offer today, the dentist said, and you're going to want to listen closely. I'm going to ask you if you would like to become a dentist.
0: What? What's going on?
1: You weren't really supposed to remember. Most won't, he started. But I put something special in your feeling just in case. Tell me what happened last time when your tooth started to hurt? I I didn't want to visit you again or any dentist. And then then I was gonna make an appointment somewhere else, but when I
0: picked up the phone, I changed my mind. I felt compelled. I had to come back here.
1: Excellent. I told you it was done properly. I think this will go well, he said to his assistant. Get the tools ready, just in case. He stood and looked at me for a while, and then he began. Dentistry has been practiced for tens of thousands of years. In the early years, the dentists were the wisest, the witch doctors, the sages. They were respected, They did more than teeth, but it was an important part of their role, central for some. All they had were stones, grass, and beeswax. As society changed, so did dental practice for treatment and for punishment. The holy men knew the power of teeth. They prayed over the teeth of Buddha and of the saints. Teeth, not eyes, are the pathway to the soul, and that power can be harnessed. Monks became the dentists for much of the world, with barbers being their assistants. When the monks became corrupt, the Pope ordered them to stay away from anything involving blood, and the barber-surgeons grew in power. You see, every time we take a tooth, we gain in strength. We gain in wealth. The barber-surgeons became too unruly, and there was a split. The strongest and wisest formed the first dental schools, and the weakest were left cutting hair, the dead waste. We are more focused than the witch doctors with their voodoo. They'll use any body parts or any waste to tie a spell to someone, but know that the most effective tying is in teeth. Why do you think dentists are all so wealthy? It is because we all know how to pray to the great grey men beyond. We all know how to ask for power, how to shed blood for riches, how to hold the rich in thrall, how to turn the switch and topple men. We are the powerful men of mouths. Dentists all over the world are in union. We meet regularly to practice the rituals and trade information. We have our own politics and our own struggles for power and hierarchy. I am only a middle-tier shaman in the dental world. But to you, right now, I must seem the most powerful man in the world. I was stunned. But how can I have never heard of this? If you're so powerful, why aren't dentists ruling the world? Who says we're not, he answered. But we can't be politicians. To have the power of dentistry, you have to practice dentistry. It's not a part-time observance. But we pull strings and teeth where we wish. Why do you think in places with universal healthcare, there is still extravagant cost for the treatment of teeth? I would rather be a dentist than a king anyway. Kings too often lose their heads. I just lose patience to more powerful dentists sometimes. But I've had friends who were dentists who I know cared about me. Why haven't they said anything or or at least warned me? (coughs) We are sworn to secrecy. What do you think people would do if they knew the power of teeth? they wouldn't just give them away. There's an innate understanding of the human brain somewhere. Why do you think parents make their children sacrifice their teeth to the tooth fairy, which is really themselves? It is because it gives them power over their children to make decisions for them. It is true that many people find it hard to keep the secrets of dentistry and they begin to crack, unable to handle the immense power. But if they try to leave, we kill them. How, how can you get away with that? We always make it look like a suicide. And now that people are keeping more data about these things, they've decided that it's from occupational stress, and we are just fine with that. Of course, by necessity, some of our dental assistants need to be brought in on some of the secrets and practices, but that's fine. We have ways of controlling them when necessary. Speaking of bringing people in, now is the time. What do you think? Would you like to become a dentist, to have wealth,
0: power, and knowledge? Why me?
1: And and how would it work? I chose you because the teeth told me to. There is a working in your gums that shows me you could be very powerful, greater than me, perhaps. The point is, the points of your teeth sing of a connection to the others. He paused as I took this in to begin you'd have to study dentistry. It wouldn't take you long to know who in your class are to be true dentists of power and who will drop out or be lonely pawns. So just study dentistry at a normal university. During the days, yes. And then at nights, we would train you in the true secrets of dentistry. I thought for a while. Do I have an option? I asked. Of course, no one can learn if they don't choose to be a student. If you don't want to be a dentist, you can come down to the room below and much as I put something in your feeling last time to make you come back here, we can do something to make sure you keep our secrets safe. There'll be no hard feelings. I looked at the assistant who seemed somewhat distant, perhaps zombified. I looked at the dentist and saw the lust for power in his eyes. Can I look at the room again? I asked. Of course, he replied and led the way down the stairs with the assistant following behind me, cutting off any hasty exit I might try to make. Not that I was thinking of that then. I looked around the strange room, at the teeth on the walls, the lips, the gums, and even a few uvulas. I watched the barber's pole spin, the white and the red flowing round and round. The grotesque throat of teeth seemed to be designed to look like a reclining dentist's chair, but at the same time, a mouth pulled open too wide, screaming in agony. The flickering candles made everything appear as if it was moving, swaying slightly. I thought about the man seated strapped in the chair, blood flowing over his lips and his tongue sitting on a platter. I thought about power and control. I thought about keeping secrets, suicides. I thought about drills and needles, and teeth. I don't think I can do it, I said. So what's next? Please, said the dentist, take a seat.
2: <laughs> I love that story. It's it's so great. It was so good to listen to that for a second time, uh, which, which actually raises some, some of the same questions that I had the first time that we, we went through that story. Um, but some new ones. And I was wondering if it's okay if I just start with some of the new ones first. Let's do it. So first of all, I would watch the hell out of a series or read a series that covered the schism between the Pope and the barber surgeons. (laughs) It's a, a little detail that I don't think that I picked up too much on the first time hearing that story.
1: So the actual history is that monks used to do dentistry and surgery and a number of other things, but then they started to become sort of Uh, through that, through having all that kind of power of being the the doctors as well as the the monks, they sort of of become little, uh, I guess, despots in a way. And the Pope was like, we're having none of it. And he banned them from doing anything to do with blood. And they did used to use barbers as their surgery assistants. And so then afterwards, those were the people left with the knowledge. So that's how barber surgeons came about.
2: Interesting. I only know, uh, I guess, symbolism of the... Barber's pole representing bloodletting being tied to the pole voluntarily and having your blood let to equalise your humours, which is why the the kind of candy stripe happens. I believe that's right. Have you heard the same?
1: Well, I was just, I was just. You saw, you, because we're doing Zoom, you get to see my facial expressions. Yeah, um, I made a quizzical look. Everyone, uh, I'm pretty sure I was reading about the fact that that's been attributed to barber poles later. That it wasn't actually wasn't actually a particular thing, mm. but. It is, it's a fun story.
2: <laughs> it is nice. I, I guess uh, one of the questions, one of the main questions that I had, because I think with stories like this that uh, take a turn, which is a really fun turn in this story, what I really like is, is, is the. Oh, what was that?
1: I, I uh, was putting my water down and I bumped a button that says no in 10 different humorous
2: ways. Oh, good. <laughs> it's what happens when we record from our own homes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I I really enjoy uh, the world building actually in this story. And and I wanted to ask you about that because as a writer, how do you develop that kind of uh, secretive world that lies just under our real world, you know, with these touchstones of, haven't you ever wondered why the uh, suicide rate of dentists is so high? It's because of this. And um, how how does that happen for you as a writer?
1: I, I, you know, I guess with this story, I can't remember if I'd just been to the dentist or needed to go to the dentist. And I was thinking about how much it costs. And uh, I just had, I'd, I'd also been researching voodoo uh, for this young adult fiction novel idea I have that, you know, who knows one day. And, um, and uh, the, the two ideas combined in my head and I just, I really had a good laugh about just the idea that a dentist would attribute their wealth to voodoo rituals when it's just plainly that they charge a lot you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but you could also correlate those and go, you know, but yeah, we couldn't charge a lot if we didn't have these rituals or something, you know, and they could yeah. very much get at that in their head. And then I just thought of lots of, I tried to think of lots of other things that are actually very banal that could be explained in a sinister way. So that's why the universal healthcare thing. And then the suicide thing, it's not banal, but it's, it just added up once I started doing the other sinister things. And then I like the bit about that, that, Parents unknowingly, what they're doing is sacrificing teeth to themselves for control to make decisions about children. You know? <laughs>
2: I love which... that because you, you establish a law, I guess, uh, and then you follow it along to its natural conclusion, you know, which is, of course, the tooth fairy and, and all the things that you're describing. But I think that's what uh, I really enjoy the most of conspiracy theories because it allows or it gives the license to the people who subscribe to those theories to say, it's so obvious. Why doesn't everyone understand this? And, and I really enjoy that little part of this story.
1: Well, that was kind of the idea. I kind of wanted to build my own conspiracy theory and have proofs for it. You know, stuff that you could go,
2: oh, it's true. Of course, of course.
1: Yeah, why is it like, I, I didn't fully get the idea across, I don't think in the story, but the, one of the ideas I had is that dentists, uh, when you are treated by a dentist, they put something special in your tooth when they treat you. So that if you have pain in your teeth, you want to go to the dentist again. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of got that with the feeling bit, but I also, uh, I think it just sort of, I was trying to pare the story back because I was already adding to it, you know, fluffing it out kind of thing.
2: I, I guess, uh, you know, at this point in, in the conversation, um, uh, we, we got close to this point anyway, last time that we were talking about this story and, and I told my, my embarrassing experience. But I think it's super interesting because I had the exact opposite real life experience of that, where I went to the dentist when I was very young, uh, and it made me not want to return to the dentist. And I wonder if that's a common, you know, everyone, it, it's in kind of our, uh, our culture to be making fun of the fear of going to the dentist. Everyone maybe has some kind of inherent fear of the dentist, or at least it's something that's extremely culturally acceptable to have a fear of. So I wonder why. Where that comes from, and then was that the reason why you chose dentistry as your motif for horror story? Well, I I, like I said, I don't
1: know, I think it was just uh, a conveyance of ideas. I don't, I I, I chose dentistry because the idea came to me about dentistry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was going, I need to write a horror, let's choose something. It went Mm -hmm. dentistry, but the idea came, horrible thing for the the story, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because for me, there's there's some truth in the story because the only I don't care about going to the dentist. I'm quite happy to go to the dentist. But the yeah, only then, thing Michael, that holds... You have,
2: you have very straight teeth. So. At the top
1: right, <laughs> at the bottom row, I'm missing some. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had impacted wisdom teeth. And uh, I, and then my dentist told me at the time when I was a teenager, I had, or just whatever, early 20s, I can't remember. Uh, but I had my, my wisdom teeth impact. And then the dentist was like, oh, they should be fine. Like They're, yeah. this, they're, they're okay where they are kind of thing. And then over time, what's happened is because the, the impact means that they've, they've grown sort of sideways into the other teeth. Over time, a few years ago, those teeth started almost like drilling into the other teeth next to them. And because there was basically no space between them, it was impossible to clean properly. And so I ended up with, in my bottom row of teeth, just both, both of the teeth next to my wisdom teeth, having a hole rotted in them from either side uh, and having to get them removed. That's horrific.
2: <laughs> uh, it is. But I was also just thinking as you're saying that um, body horror works so well as a, as a genre because it's so relative to everyone who encounters the story. As you're saying that, I can feel the teeth in my mouth and imagine pretty vividly what you went through um, because I have wisdom teeth. I had, you know, uh, a relative experience. Do you think that's what, uh, what connects us to this idea of a fear of teeth-related things, of, of um, body horror, you know, is that, is that a universal thing? Is that why it works so well? Well, yeah. I mean, we've all got a body, you know, Mm -hmm.
1: that's, uh, I've noticed that in my stories, I like describing what's happening to, to the body in a way, even uh, if in the first episode, we had the flamingo story Mm. and I described how that flamingo uh, gets treated and I felt like it was, you know, even though I was describing a flamingo's body there, you could feel it in your body as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it connects you deeply to something when you're describing a body, especially, especially when it's, when it's audio, where rather than watching a movie, when you watch a movie, I find that I don't don't feel the horror as much when I watch a body horror film, a torture porn film or anything like that, that, if you know what I mean. But with audio, because it's just that one thing being created for you and you're creating everything else in your mind. That's why it connects so, so Yeah, it's,
2: it's an interesting point of difference because I think uh, the, the kind of torture porn that you're describing, you know, that's, I guess, started with Saw and then a, as a resurgence and then- Mate, became, have you ever seen Un Chien Andalou? No. Oh, that's
1: the famous uh, French film that uh, starts with someone
2: slitting an eyeball with a razor. Oh, yes. I have. Sorry. I, yeah. I saw that in my first year of uni. Of course you did. <laughs> I mean, that's appropriate. Yeah and uh yeah so i think the difference is that uh it's less less for the sake of spectacle and more for the sake of you know a bit of a spine chilling experience you know yeah. it's it's kind of it's more it's more embodied or the, the aim is to embody the experience more for the listener the viewer or whatever um rather than look at it and and nudge the person next to you and go like ho you know
0: yeah absolutely
2: it's, yeah that's why I connected with that story so much and, and the things that I really loved about it. The thing that I didn't connect with but I found equally compelling was this uh, idea perhaps of the ultimate nightmare for the conservative straight white male. It's this like, you know, uh, idea that it's bodily invasive. You have another uh, authoritative male sticking their hand and fingers into your mouth with tools uh, where you're strapped down and restrained uh he has no the character has no memory of what happens and is kind of shamed afterwards for it as well and given replacement clothing uh again at the behest of the the authoritative uh male who has dominated him in this fashion uh and kind of shamed out again in front of his sexy uh uh woman nurse it's interesting character. that mm. you say that she's sexy well, I just... I Because she was never because, described
1: beyond no, assistant but, and naked. That was it.
2: Yeah, no. So not sexy to me as a, a listener, but sexy to the character, I think. Because later, you know, there's that description of him imagining her running a, the handle of a scalpel up her thigh. And, and so it, she becomes a sort of sexual object to him. Possibly. Um, and, and I thought that was super interesting because it's got this tangling of uh, sexual violence and excitement, uh, shame and danger. With, with something that is compelled to come back to. What you know, about
1: then? Did you notice as well that the, um, the receptionist is naked in his mind, spitting teeth at him as well?
2: Yeah, I, actually, I, I guess I didn't pay as much attention to that. I was more okay. gravitating towards um, the, the, the kind of nightmarish situation or, or the character's understanding of what is and what becomes a nightmarish situation and, and less about the slow kind of entrance into the environment. Um, but that's interesting. Did you, do, how, did, how did you consider you know, the environment of the office and, and sort of creating the environment of the office?
1: Well, I was just trying to create a classic dentist thing. The reason I brought in the assistant being naked and spitting teeth at him as well is because it creates doubt in the reader's mind then because the situation when he walks downstairs is that there's a dentist and an assistant there naked dancing around. The, the reception is not mentioned. Mm. But then he's got this memory of the receptionist naked as well. And so it mm-hmm. creates doubt that maybe he's just been making it up in my mind. That was how, it, that's what I thought.
2: It's, I mean, it's so fascinating to me, this whole story and kind of just imagining what the priorities of this, this uh, unnamed character is, I suppose it's kind of uh, blank enough to serve as a template for anyone to insert themselves. Or did you want imagine when you're writing this a kind of backstory to the character that is not mentioned?
1: No, the character was unnecessary. <laughs> the character, <laughs> no, the character was only, the character was there to, to uh, let the dentist talk about the dentists or a voodoo cult, basically. Yeah, sure, yeah. just I just had to le- find a way to lead into being able to write down that silly idea I'd had, really.
2: It, it's, uh, it's funny because being the second time of listening to this, I really try and pass out what that character is. Because we see it from their point of view, um, it makes sense that they're just a narrative device. But I really want to know more about that dentist. You know? oh, sorry, not dentist. The, I want to know more about the patient. Who, who went
1: in. I, so I, I purposely left names out of it, except for one name. And that was to sort of highlight that there are other names aren't there. And that's when he finds Simon Exley's past. Simon Exley is a made up name entirely. I don't know anyone by that name. I didn't mm. look it up in a phone book, you know, <laughs> um, but also I, I thought about that with the character that I wanted to make them a, an avatar for the reader. But at mm. the same time, I also decided not to, do that too obviously as well. And so I I wanted to give them some characteristics, you know, like he's watching a Western film at some point. He doesn't just watch a film.
2: Mm.
0: Mm.
2: I do also, I love the title. The title is so excellent to me. That kind of word that is, can be used as an authoritative demand. It can be something that is a reactive um, compulsion, you know, and it, it totally for me encapsulates all the tensions that play out through the story. And I, I really, really enjoyed the title. Love a good title. And this is a great one.
1: Do you reckon spit is an onomatopoeic word? I think it can be.
2: Yeah, I think so. It, I think it's, um, yeah. I mean, the S and the P, as you transition between them both, get you ready to, to really just like do the, the T that punches out at the end. So yeah. it really go, plays through that, like getting it ready to really spit something out of your mouth. So I, I, I can see that.
1: Now, I'm going to say as well, so uh, I meant to say it earlier, that the thing with me relating to the story and fear with dentists is the only fear I do have is a monetary concern. I've definitely put <laughs> off going to a dentist because of money, and I put that in the story. Yeah. Um, but you were saying you'd had a bad experience with a dentist, and I think I think you should explain your childhood experience. For <laughs> okay.
2: So this is, this is uh, I guess, the benefit of going through this a second time. I thought I could get away with not bringing this story up. But, yeah, I mean, I went to the dentist uh, – Age nine, I believe it was something like that. it's was pretty small, quite um, a sore tooth, and I had to end up getting a filling at that age. I just went there with my mom. Very small practice. And did you have it...
1: adult teeth by then already?
2: No, I didn't. But I had a lot of pain, so I couldn't oh. wait for the tooth to come out. So they when I went to the the dentist, uh, they they said that I had to get a filling. Uh, so the, the the first the first part of the story that I didn't tell you at the beginning of um, of the last session that we did was that the way that I discovered that I had a tooth issue was that my mom had made dinner for us. And then uh, I'd sat there and I had a lot of trouble chewing. And uh, we had a very strict dinner table manners uh, kind of routine event uh, at the end of each day. So being, being of Japanese descent, it meant that we had to Sit there and adhere to all of those rules, no matter what age you were, no matter what was going on. And I couldn't do that because my tooth hurt so much, but nobody believed me because you're I, a little shit. Because I was a little kid and I didn't want to sit still <laughs> and do all that stuff, you know? And it turned out that I was, was in, in pain because I had a hole in my tooth. And, and then uh, when, when we went to the doctor, that becomes important because I, I was being quite belligerent to the doctor. I guess my mom felt guilty for not believing me that I was actually in physical pain. And then when we went there, I didn't want to get the injection to numb the tooth. I didn't want to get that injection done because I was afraid of the needle. So I, I just wouldn't sit still. And I was really uh, adamant that I didn't want to do that. And then my mom eventually sort of said, okay, fine. If you don't want to do it, then we'll, we'll proceed without it. And then as soon as you're ready to get the injection, we'll stop. And for some reason, and I, I think about this now, I can't believe that the dentist actually went ahead with that. You know, I, I'm a. I was a nine-year-old child. I was like, there was no way that I was, uh, able to make a good decision about my own tooth health, uh, over over my own parents who was there and a dentist. But they they, you know, did it and they started. How drilling. powerful
1: is your mum though? Do you think it was just? Do you think? Oh, yeah, he she's was? a.
2: Yeah, she's. A yeah, problem. you know, it was yeah.
1: him just going. All right, I I don't care. I'm not messing uh, yeah, with. Perhaps
2: this perhaps it was that. Yeah, but uh, once it started going, I mean. It, I have a very clear memory of how painful that was, the sound and, and sitting still and, and, and also being so belligerent and not getting the anesthetic and sort of sitting there and, and tensing every muscle in my body or trying to keep my mouth open and, and crying actually, but you know, quietly when that was happening and eventually uh, being forced to go like, okay, that's enough. Um, we're going to give you the injection now <laughs> uh, and then finished out the procedure. And I thought about it for quite a while afterwards. And uh, I think that's, uh, I think that the real lesson that I took away from that, you know, after all of that kind of rigmarole was that not every painful experience teaches you a lesson. I didn't learn anything from that experience at all. It just really. Was I still think it's that. hilarious that you think you learned nothing from that. Like I've learned the, nothing from that experience. What, have you still refused injections or something or? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's like, uh, well, no, I don't refuse them, but I don't particularly like them. So if I can get away with not doing it. For example, I had to go and get my uh, wisdom teeth sorted out and I elected to get the general anesthetic rather than, you know, the, the local anesthetic because I didn't want to deal with that again. Oh, wow. and, and maybe there was a lesson there because I, I certainly didn't say to them, don't worry about giving me any anesthetic.
1: <laughs> just give me a piece of bark to chew down on.
2: <laughs> um, well, so if yeah. it was willow tree
1: bark, it would have been aspirin. So there you go.
2: Well, they didn't offer that. Because so
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it so uh, my, my thing is with the dentist, it's that I just, I, I have an ability to cope with pain. And especially like somewhere like the dentist where I know I'm not in danger. And last time I went to the dentist, I had to have some teeth pulled out and it was pretty complicated. That was to do with the wisdom teeth thing. Mm. And um, the dentist was like, look, maybe, well, I'll see if I can do it here. You might need to go to a specialist kind of thing. Mm. And they gave me an injection in my gums and started pulling and they were like, oh, let me know if it hurts. And a couple of times I like stopped and went, just so you know, there's a lot of pain there. They're like, do you want me to stop? I'm like, no, I'm just letting you know there's pain in case that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> like, should we give you more injection? I'm like, well, I don't, I, I mean, if you think so, but I'm not really worried about it. I'm just letting you know there's pain there. And yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, just yeah. sitting there indicating if there was pain because I knew that pain is in my head and I needed to get the dentistry done. So I wasn't worried about it. It was pretty interesting.
2: Mm. I don't think I've had that um, kind of separation or, or being able to do that separation between bodily sensation and and kind of you know being cognizant of and saying i can just bear that because it's just the thing that's happening to my body
1: yeah i mean it's funny i'm not like i'm not gonna act like i'm a super tough guy like if i hurt my (laughs) like if i hurt myself i i want to sit down and that kind of thing
2: yeah sure. it was just
1: an interesting situation with the dentist there was immense pain but i was just like yeah it's it's just pain just just lie here in my head you know
2: did you ever have to uh, go to the dentist or get anything fixed after you got hit in the face?
1: That time at work?
2: Yeah. No,
1: um, there was no problem with my teeth from there. Okay, yeah. My
2: jaw was very sore. Yeah, and you, you've got a dead spot now on your lip, right? From uh...
1: That was a different time. Oh, okay. That, that's a, that, there's a scar on my, um, yeah. on my upper lip. Right. That was a tooth actually going through my upper lip, yeah.
2: It's hard to keep track of the amount of times that you've been hit in the face because of working in a bar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is it because of working
2: in a bar though? <laughs> that was a great story. I really enjoyed that one. And, and I especially enjoyed listening to it again. You know, there's something um, each time Well, the second time I still got a lot out of it. Uh, it's a really great story. And I, I hope you do more stuff about Voodoo. I really enjoy um, hearing about it. And uh, we've talked about Voodoo a bunch before in the past together. I thought it was really excellent. I really enjoyed that one.
1: I will say as well, I I don't know. It's funny. Sometimes you're not really meant to say stuff about your own work, but who cares? I really enjoyed reading it out loud again. And I was much more confident of it when I read it this time. And I must say, actually, it was partly because I I listened back last night to episode three Mm. and I sounded like I'd taken some helium in because I spoke really fast and I read really fast. (laughs) And I remember today that I should read slower because it sounds better.
2: It might also be that when we're in the studio recording it, I'm just standing so close to you staring at you while you're reading. It was (laughs) a tiny room that we recorded those three episodes in
1: (laughs) that we had to get people to let us in and out of and stuff. It was very funny.
2: (laughs) Yeah, really excellent story. Um, Thank you again for sharing that one. And and it might be worth mentioning as well that often the stories that Micah is uh, reading out, they're, they're kind of first passes, they're drafts, you know and it's oh, really- always
1: I haven't read yeah. anything that I've actually edited <laughs> every time I'm reading there's a, at least one point where I go what does that sentence even say and I have to fix it on the fly so if you ever read the uh printed versions which uh well Eric's just made a website for us and um I should have pdf versions of every story so if you like one particularly you'll be able to you know read it yourself um, but if you're doing that you'll notice yeah. that they will be oh, different wow. to what I've read out <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll pop them up on the website for people to have a look at and read so that'd be yeah that'd be fun excuse me bless you
1: you could use that sound as a transition so i reckon we could go on to the next story here
2: are you gonna sneeze now or should i just cut that on the sneeze oh, i don't know you're the tech wizard <laughs> all right. uh okay so are we moving on to the room for the next story yeah i'm just gonna
1: all right so this next story we're gonna do is uh from an australian author Uh, His name is uh, Stephen Amsterdam. and The book I'm reading out of is called Things We Didn't See Coming. So it's a series of short stories and I'm going to read out the story, The Theft That Got Me Here. Are you ready, Eric?
2: Yeah, and I I think I'd just also like to mention um, we are re-recording this and uh, I have heard this story before and I didn't like it the first time, which I I found very uh, kind of, at least... I didn't like it and I really want to talk about why and then really want to give it another go. So I'm looking forward to hearing this story again.
1: Well, it's interesting for me because also I think you've talked about it before. I let you a book once by an author that I'd let you a book of that you loved. And then this book that I let you, you hated. And the funny part of that is it was the only book you took with you (laughs) on a, on a boat that you were going to be on for months.
2: Yeah. And, and uh, we talked about another episode, but, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I really don't think that you need to like something to get a lot out of it. I talked to you, Micah, about that book and, and lots of other people for ages afterwards. I thought about it a lot. There were some okay parts in it. I just I really didn't like that book.
1: That book was called <laughs> Trout Fishing in America by Richard Brodigan. I think it's an excellent book. Otherwise I wouldn't have lent it to Eric. <laughs> <clears throat> so here comes the story Eric didn't like the first time. Let's see what happens. <laughs> It's called The Theft That Got Me Here. Okay. The new pills seem to be helping. Her eyes droop less. Grandpa's not optimistic, but that's not news. The email finally came that the city revoked his driver's license. Complaints, citations, near misses. They emailed my mother, not him. Kind of patronizing, I think. You'll stay with them and help out while he adjusts meaning you won't see your delinquent friends for the summer. Do the driving for him. Help clean grandma twice a day, always life-affirming. Make their meals with whatever ingredients I can scare up. As if sheer boredom isn't the quickest road to the alternate economy. How could she think there'd be enough food for three here? If she's receiving my docked until my stupid case gets through the courts, allotment coupons. Clearly you're resourceful, she said. Grandpa scratches his knee all day with a ruler and grandma doesn't know where she is. Those activities don't burn a lot of fuel, so we're managing with the food. And it's not like he needs me to drive them around. Like all good old folks, he can get ripped off without leaving the house, ordering water and the basics on the net. Still, it's safer than shopping at the piers. So no one's exactly getting dressed up for a Sunday drive. It's been so dusty. I don't think Grandpa or I even went out to the street yesterday. This has kept me on the good path so far. I'll say that. The neighbours are worse off than we are. Though I've noticed a few lawbreakers keeping tiny squares of lawn. This place has nothing left to sell except Grandpa's compulsively wrapped wildlife magazines. And even a thug such as I wouldn't do that. They're full of those crazy nature greens you only see on screen. They look more real in print for some reason, even though the paper's all parched. We'd be eating peaches if this stupid barricade weren't on. It's still early, so I may as well do my push-ups. Break. You're supposed to take two minutes between sets to let the muscles adjust and relax. I drank all my water already, and the tank's in their bedroom. I'm thirsty, and they're half-deaf, so no one minds if I go in there. If they weren't breathing so loud, I'd swear they were dead. She got her back to, she's got her back to him, his hands on her shoulder. Does he fall asleep like that? Or does his hand just find its way there every night? Does she wake with a start, this strange man touching her? If they hadn't had more than 50 good years, my heart would break for him. While I'm here, Grandpa's got these ferocious pain managers I wanted to try, you know, for all my pain. I take two and tiptoe out. I get back to the guest room and try to do the rest of my push ups before the pills enter the bloodstream. I'm doing my last set and everything slows down. No wonder he shuffles. So I'm lying there decimated, slowed down to a piss puddle of my former self when Grandma opens the door and she's fine. She's standing on her own, not holding the walls, nothing. She's been off the map for six years. And now she's looking at me like a professor, not speedy and scared like she was on the last treatment, but simply there, her old self. And this isn't me on drugs, it's her on drugs. She's got that omnipotence back. She's got, she has got. She. can see I've been into their stash, but she doesn't care. It's almost looks like she's having a brief perv over the muscles in my back and she bends down to give them a feel. She's in that orange tracksuit of hers, the one she wore every day when, when she could pick out her clothes and says, Get off the floor. I'm worried about Grandpa, this thing with the licence. We've got to cheer him up. Grandpa says she woke up like this and he's not asking questions. So Rip Van Winkle made us breakfast. She seemed put out at first that there's so little food in the kitchen, but she just made do, cleaning up our crusty mess as she went. Grandpa sat at the table and beamed because she was in charge again. She wanted to make pancakes, so he sent me out with $10 and after just half an hour of wandering around with a steady dose of that melty feeling in my muscles, I was able to locate some milk and an egg from one of the Chinese sellers. She made the recipe from memory. The entire time, she's yammering away about Grandpa's license, the restrictive bullshitness, her word, of the urban government, how they'd voted for power, they'd be voted from power in a minute and get a good dose of what they'd been prescribing. When she flipped the last pancake and sat down with us, not believing she'd been caught without maple syrup, he held her free hand while she ate. I had forgotten they could be like this, and it made me feel like I'm 10 again. So I get emotional about her reappearance. Grandma sees it in my eyes, and Grandpa's basically been wiping his tears away all morning, so she gives me a quick frown and shake of the head. It'll only encourage him. I formally retract my earlier comment that my heart doesn't break him. how for how he's been,
0: alone, but now she's back. It's almost noon, and
1: all the pancakes and excitement left Grandpa snoring on the couch. I'm next to his feet, looking at pictures of jungles and glaciers. Grandma's slamming around, looking at all of her stuff, wondering why her clothes are stained and why the house doesn't smell clean. Then she comes out to harass me for sitting in the dark. This is ridiculous. It's springtime. Here's what we're going to do. We'll take Grandpa to the country. <coughs> excuse me. That was me, not the character saying excuse me. It wasn't coincidental. We'll take grandma, Grandpa to the country. Pep him up. We can't. Does the young master have appointments today? There's a barricade on. Then we'll pass through it. I've packed some things. You need fresher air. You look like a hoodlum. Is my grandson a hoodlum? No. Get yourself together. I'll take care of Grandpa. If I heard right, we're going for a Sunday drive. The street is looking miserable, but once we leave the city, we'll see some signs of life. There should be lilacs by now. Maybe we can give Grandpa a little refresher at the wheel. Would you let me do that for you, darling? Grandpa's been quiet all morning, just enjoying the show, but he finally tells her she can't drive out of the city. They have these checkpoints. You don't know about these. I do. I've had nothing to do for the last six years, but listen, of course I know. You understood what I've been saying? Everything, my sweet, my love, she adores him, then turns and looks right into me. I'll take this occasion to say that being talked about in the third person while being in the room is not pleasant. Suddenly I'm thinking about all the times I dipped into her pills when I thought she was lost in the woods can you not do it again? I won't, I promise, but the checkpoints are serious. My bean, grandpa and I lived out there, we're from there, she glares through me. It's not your criminal record that's going to hold us back, is it? Grandpa takes her hand. None of us have the right ID. She's put his hand back on his lap. Let us see if we can't enjoy ourselves, all right? I want to give it one shot. What are they going to do? Put us in jail? We say nothing as she shifts up like she's preparing for warp speed. Hey, how do you like my driving? After an hour spent dwarfed in a lineup of trucks and big cars, we get to the checkpoint. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Where are you going today? We're going to visit our old property, sixteen acres in Keaton. Do you know Keaton? I've been unwell, and this is my first day better. I need to see some spring. I do. Here's all the paperwork from the land, see? And here are our identity cards. Angel, pass yours up. These are urban cards. You're not allowed outside. Her face became this wince. She wasn't surprised or put off by the rules he was trying to enforce. She was just disappointed with him. If Grandpa and I had any lingering doubts about her recovered ability to work over a public official... Young man, Mr... What does that say? Sinkowitz. Do I have it right? Gorgeous. My mother's father was from Krakow. Here's the situation, but I'd like you to forget everything else that's happened and stay with me for a moment. My husband and I lived in Keaton for 37 years. How old are you? The truck behind us honked just then, but she didn't even flinch. To get everything else, just answer me. 25. Thank you. We bought the place when we were doing well, when the country, by which I mean the entire nation, was doing well. We had our children and we're blessed enough to be able to afford that land. Here, this is how it looked when we bought it. And this is how it looked 10 years later to show you all the work we did on it. Do you see that little rise before the trees start? We're able to see the hills, all the neighbours across the valley, that little pond, the sky above the rolling hills. Three family weddings happened on that hill and four civil union ceremonies, which I suppose tells you exactly what sort of people we are and why we ended up with urban cards but these were all and equally beautiful events and they are still harmonious partnerships or that's what they tell an old lady. Where do you live? You seem like a sweet man. My grandson's 17 and hasn't seen much outside of the city parks lately. And I'm sure, you know, they're mainly dust. She drifts off here for a second. I wish we were leaving you all with better story. Miss thank you, but I can't do anything about the, I started forgetting things. You're getting my entire life. Imagine what that's like. They took me to the university hospital, a magnificent institution. They put me on an experimental medicine, some synthetic proteins that seem to have worked And I'm sorry. There's a line of vehicles behind you. And my job is to, I'm coming to my point. I was admitted to the hospital because I'd been a teacher. My husband can't go there because he worked for a company that robbed its employees. But I worked for the state back when the state took care of its own like you, I had grand and noble responsibilities to all, but I still had to deal with pesky individuals. I'm sure you know the difficulty. Sometimes those two things can be at cross purposes. Say, when one child is a bit behind, maybe keeping the others from moving on, what should I do? Ignore the child? I found that I had no choice in the matter. As soon as I started seeing the class as more important than the students, the children were lost. I was lost. Nothing was grand. Nothing was noble. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll get fired. No one will know. Central will find out. Anything named Central doesn't even know what you look like. I do, and I'm watching you to see that you make the right decision here. He waved us through. The last time I left the city was four years ago, and the beltway looks just as grim as I remember. No one's living here because everybody had to choose, urban or rural, and this place is neither. Dry, decaying suburbs. Nothing of values left, not even windows. The thugs who took over the distribution of resources occupy the biggest spaces they can find here and make them into offices, but they live in the bigger houses farther out. So there's all these little mansions, all this real estate, empty and worthless. Whole houses look gutted like cars that have been stripped and put up on blocks. Grandpa says, plenty ironic. These suburbanites who want life both ways out here end up losing the most. Grandma says, plenty ironic. Plenty ironic. No one stops us as grandma drives faster and farther from the city. Grandpa has one hand on her knee the entire time, like it's keeping him steady. They both have this obvious buzz on because they made it through the barricade. Mine has worn off. Her driving is fine, by the way, zipping along between the big cars and trucks, even for someone who hasn't spent most of the last few years in bed. We're the smallest thing on the road and it's like no one really seems to notice. It all goes south when she pulls up into the empty lot of an old supermarket to give Grandpa the wheel. She does it so sweetly, so wifely. She gets out, walks around the car to the passenger side, tells him to slide over. Drive. Do you know what they'll do to me? We've already broken laws, and we've got a real live criminal in the back seat. All I took was a laptop. That's all they caught you with, Angel? She is so completely black, it's scary. Grandpa didn't seem to know how to even argue. I'm old is all there is. They're not about to let me take another test. You're driving for me, not them. He pauses here to kiss her on her cracked, sloppily lipstick lips, her false teeth floating behind her grin. I'm glad you're back. I never left. I wouldn't. I won't. So I've got no options? None. Let's go to Bellsbrook. Her destination all along, not the old property in Keaton which we all knew had been sold to a salad processor a year after they moved. Keaton seemed more official since she had some paperwork on it. Ellsbrook is where they honeymooned back in the 60s, the old hippies. His scary attempt to drive us out of an empty parking lot isn't what screwed us. It's that a big car of kids saw a little car. They'd been hanging there on the ball field behind, I guess, and suddenly roar down, announcing themselves by screaming while grandpa's adjusting the rear view. They're mainly teenage girls, not bad ones either, but a little rough, even for me. Grandpa has read enough reports of this kind of thing to know now is the time to use the accelerator and remember how to steer. He does, and we get back on the road, but with them right behind us, streaking into an orange emergency cone that we're godless freaks, I sink down in the back. They catch up in two seconds and start bombarding us with apples. Grandpa says st- stays steady through the pounding. We roll up the windows to protect ourselves. Sad, because we haven't seen apples in a year and now they're drumming all over us. Unthinkable that people could keep apples from other people. Grandma leans in close to him as Grandpa squeezes through the traffic, trying to get away. Naturally, other kind country folk see we are being harassed, so they start throwing whatever they have handy too. Bread, carrots, peaches, they have everything out here, all the orchards, all the factories. Grandpa maintains though, doesn't wave, doesn't give anyone the finger. After 10 minutes, they all seem to run out of interest or artillery. We still get some looks because the car's covered with garbage now, but we can finally calm down. Then the farmland starts on either side, and it's like in The Wizard of Oz when she crosses into Technicolor. Tobacco, lush and irrigated to the greenest green. They'd let us die of thirst inside the city, but they keep this tobacco so bright it practically hurts your eyes. So you look at the sky, which is easy to see because it's the colour of daydreams. And then you look at the leaves again and it's like a picture in a magazine. They must have had rain yesterday because when the sun finally comes through, the air gets all syrupy. We open the windows and inhale one solid hour of leafy crops growing, manure and all. We look out at all the food, hungry. Grandma says, oh, how I miss my garden. But we know enough by then not to try and pick anything. Driving into Bell's Brook, the car gets some more glances but no more projectiles. It's a living poster: baby blue shutters, navy blue fences, and smells of freshly baked everything piping out of each chimney. But we speed through because whatever hospitality is there, it doesn't extend to us. Their spot is about two miles outside of town, and Grandma recognizes the maple tree at the turnoff. She yells, "Here!" and Grandpa pulls onto the grass and parks behind a thicket of overgrown wild artichokes thick with purple flowers. She jumps out hauls her giant purse full of meds out after her and straightens her hair and makeup like she's about to go on TV. She walks around and pulls Grandpa out. They putter across the meadows to what she's calling R Hill while I wipe the car back to presentability. The chase shook her up and she holds on to him or he holds on to her, extra tight as they make their way through Milkweed, waving the fluff out of their faces, city folk, as they turn to take the easiest path up the hill. I see that each of their rounded backs, her track jacket, his baby blue cardigan, is dusted with white seeds. It hits me that I've never seen them both walk away from me. They took me to the ocean once when I was little and we stayed in a shack on the edge of the sand. Every day, Grandpa walked me to the water and lifted me over the surf of each wave like I was a prince. At night, Grandma would grill whatever fish I'd point to at the market, usually the red ones. I'd fall asleep playing cards on the couch with them and wake up tucked into my sleeping bag on the floor. At the end of any visit, they were always the last ones waving as we parted. But now with this reunion or whatever it was, I get to watch them walk away, arms locked, holding each other for support on the uneven ground. So I open up the picnic and see grandma has organised a nice lunch of books for us. Good books, books she used to read. Fibrous books, if that's what she's after. Okay, so she's not all back but I take it to mean her mind is hungry, which is good. Since I can't exactly walk into a country market and use urban coupons, I'm sure all these places are on barter by now, I decide to see what's on offer at the handsome little fake mansion down the hill. The three-car garage is sitting wide open with no cars in sight. All their tools are just sitting on shelves, free for the taking. If people have fruit to throw around, I'm sure I won't have to walk far to find an outdoor pantry. What a view these bastards have. Half the valley below, 10 kinds of trees, some pear groves down there, all in flower. Behind that, a forest. The quiet, except for a car down then, the Kind of quiet you read about, like being underwater. I walk up the porch and turn the knob and I'm in. These folks stocked up on all the electronics when they could. Movies, music, books. These farmers won't be born till the next millennium. and they thoughtfully left me a backpack here to carry it away in. Mine, 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 and mine. So I'm heading into the kitchen, thinking it should be a breeze. Food's the easiest to steal in a big house like this, because there's a lot of it, and outside of the city, not even the fancy stuff would be locked up. When I hear, hey kid, who are you? There's this old man in his underwear sitting at the table with his hands folded. He's got that gone fishing face I know from grandma. So I do some quick math and say, your grandson, remember? Remember? He grunts and settles back like I thought he would and chants Eric to himself a few times. I can practically see his heart through his skin, his chest going up and down like a motor. Probably can't get the right meds out here. We've got that one over them. He tries to smile and just looks at me as I pack as much of the refrigerator and pantry as I can, a gallon of maple syrup, into a giant wheelie suitcase. I push it all back to the car, cram this stuff into the trunk. Ditch the suitcase, a shame, but there's no room in the car, and pack the smoked sausages, sweet potato pie, and oranges into the picnic bag and head out to find them on their hill. They're at the edge of the forest, using a flat rock as a bench. They stop talking when I come up. I unpack the lunch, concocting some nervous story of how I bought it in town, but they happily attack the food without Grandma even asking for her books. Real sunlight on their pale, wrinkled faces, white hair blowing. They look like very happy ghosts. But I can tell they're holding something back. Even though they're eating it, they know it's stolen. I'm the disappointment they're stuck with. We're situated on the exact right corner of the hill, so we don't see anyone nearby and no one can see us. We're looking down on an aerial plane of corn and wheat in endless alternation. Fuel, bread, fuel, bread, fuel, bread. And in the distance, a reservoir, enough water. More quiet. I'm thinking that we're all thinking about the first barricade when the distribution stopped and suddenly what was in the kitchen was all we had. Then I find out what they'd been thinking about. Grandpa looks at me and says, we need you to steal a big car. He says, if we do, we can stay overnight, maybe at a nice inn without worry. He says, they've got some money we can spend to enjoy life a little. He says, here, grandma will help you do it. At first, I'm flattered. He thinks this pitiful forger, this third-rate burglar, could even land a big car. But I am a good grandson, and I put together a scheme for how we could do it. I don't know how to jump cars, but the open house I just attended makes me think we can find some more unintentional generosity. As soon as I agree, they dig into the rest of the picnic. Grandma gives the rock a polite wipe with a handkerchief, and suddenly they're standing and ready to rob. We'll also have to pick up some water, she tells me, like she's starting a shopping list. So we spend the afternoon on their first crime spree. We do the water first, which turns out to be easy. As soon as we figure out that the old cabins and farms, the ones staked out by refugees who never got proper plumbing, all keep tanks. More importantly, they also keep these 40-litre water containers. Grandma's the first one to spot them on some old trailer, but there are kids on it already giving us dead eye. Grandma's insistence on heisting a couple of these forties tells me she's thinking about more than just an overnight, or maybe she's just being grandma. We drive through the next town slowly, asking for trouble, sure, but we're on a mission to find a clear, short path from somebody's yard to a spot where she can keep the car running. We find one, some hippie's house, and don't see anyone around. Grandpa stands watch while I pull it through the mud and hoist it in. The poor car drags a little from the new weight, but we get back on a four lane to leave the scene of the crime. And again, we're taking in acre after acre of green. They've never felt the thrill of larceny before, and I'm glad I could turn them onto it. The two of them in the front, their faces alert, mouths open, the way cats get all still and excited when you put them outdoors the first time and they taste the wind, they're ready for more. The big car. This was trickier because we got caught midway. For their sake, I wish I were a more aggressive thief, but I'm only an opportunistic one, so my whole strategy is to hang out in the parking lot at the barter market, waiting for some dumb soul to leave the keys in the ignition. We put our car in oversized parking between two trucks that I figured belonged to vendors who won't be back anytime soon. Grandma, a little spiteful, wants to check out the tacky items these hicks are stuck trading back and forth to each other. Grandpa and I keep her to the task at hand. We become lot lizards watching people come and go, acting like we're on our way to doing the same, casually popping up on our toes to check into every other driver's window for a glimmer of keys. After half an hour, they find their way into a red Zeus, one of these family trucks, three metres high, all leather, with fridge and beds, movie jukebox, etc. Grandpa sees the keys and scrambles in. (coughs) Grandma tosses her purse inside, jumps to the driver's side, turns it on and shouts across the lot to me, and it's got a full tank! She waves, all excited, like she's stealing a car. Gets it started, speeds over a median, and suddenly they're out of the lot and on the road. I run to our car so I can catch up with them at the next rest stop with the water and the other booty. When I get back to it, though, a trucker is shooting through the windshield. I keep a distant watch, casually strolling by, hoping he'll lose interest. He doesn't, and I keep hanging around. An audience grows, especially once he gets inside and starts looking at our stuff the electronics, the water. In our car, it looks stolen. Someone turns the 40 on its side, finds a phone number and tries to call its proper owner. I change the plot. I'm starting to look for another set of keys and another ignition, but I see grandma's and grandpa's little heads at the Zeus pull back into the lot and head over to our car to find me. I run across the lot, waving my arms to keep them from approaching. But by the time I get there... Grandpa's climbed down, looking at the people ransacking his car and shaking his head in disgust. Some man in his car thing clicks and suddenly he's calling them every name he knows. I'm hiding next to one of the trucks, trying to get Grandma to see me, which she finally does. She hollers something at Grandpa. He shuts up in an instant, practically flies up into the Zeus. They screech over to pick me up and we peel out in about one second. Before we're even starting to breathe again, Grandma goes, Well, it's good news I have my pocketbook then, isn't it? Though I will miss my books. I'll have to try, try to find some. She reaches into the back seat to give me a poke. One or two confused shots are fired after us. More as warning, but nothing serious. The crowd was just watching, stunned. I guess that someone from the city would even park there? That an old man would call anyone a fuckwad? He must have picked it up from me. Turns out, what she'd yelled at him that made him forget about his car was, Your grandson's waiting! We take turns, driving this enormous mansion. I have to admit, it's a turn-on, engorging on the peaches in the fridge. Our hosts didn't leave us much water, though, and besides that, it's getting dark. We pull off and look for a proper motel. Grandpa does the talking and we check in, with a story that we're from a small town by the city perimeter. The blonde with the welcoming looks at the front desk totally believes it. He says he found some cash in an old wallet and decided to take us on a little trip. We get a pizza delivered to the room. Maybe not the most Italian thing I ever ate, but one of the freshest. My mother keeps some basil on the kitchen ledge, but it never tastes right. So we're spread out in their sitting room and I notice they've each put down their slices. She looks at him meaningfully and then obediently he looks at me. Grandpa says, we'd like to part ways tomorrow. I'm like, huh? Grandma's better? There's nothing for us in the city? We'll manage out here. We'll find you another car so you can get back. What about your ID? I used to have some contacts in government. We could get absorbed in. We might get completely reclassified. Seems grandma brought all our savings in the purse. That should ease things for us till we get organized, get our benefits transferred. We don't care about the politics. We'll have a better life out here. Without your family? Grandma raises her eyebrows at me. You've got your own life, don't you? We'll organise visits around the barricade, sweetheart. You've got to finish college. You are going back to school, aren't you? How are you going to explain the stolen car? Who's going to ask to see my certificate of title? They have no central here. We'll head west and I'll be fine. They may even let me keep my licence. Maybe they'll give me one of those trucks to drive. But you're not Christians. Grandpa and I got by out here for quite a while just by being polite. I can talk the talk if I need to. Look, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then Grandpa breaks out his smile that's been under wraps for years and kisses her for the 50th time since she woke up. Your mother will understand and so will you. It's not negotiable. I give up. I ask Grandpa for two of his pain pills. He goes through Grandma's bags and gives me them without a fuss. I say goodnight. Steal one car and suddenly you're a professional. I don't see why rural would settle them, cute as they are. They're not exactly at peak productivity. They might do all right as petty thieves till grandpa runs over someone. My mother totally won't understand. This is going to be my fault. Now it's morning, almost checkout time. The doors still close. I'm going to go hit on the blonde and see if all the girls out here are really virgins as advertised or what. This chicklet turns out to be extra righteous about the pioneering spirit and not going to school so she can learn about life from living it and going to church. And the, come fuck me looks turned out to be some component of rural programming. I'm looking at her and thinking somewhere there are girls who aren't this weak, maybe outside of the towns. Specifically, I'm imagining farm girls that look like her experimenting with their brothers who look like me. where grandpa comes down looking like he woke up without a lung. He brings me back to their room, stands in the doorway because he can't look. She's in the bed staring around. Blank as she was the day before yesterday.
0: And I can smell pee. He says, she
1: woke up like this. I've talked to her all morning, but I can't bring her back. He hides his face from me by pushing his head against the wall. I help him clean her up. He's sure she's had her meds, but we find them in her pocketbook amid all the other pills and force down an extra dose just in case. He's slowed down already, massaging his knee, and I can see he needs a nap. I tell him, tomorrow might be better. He shakes his head. I make him take a shower while I sit with Grandma. Then I'll take one, so we'll be about as clean as can be expected, considering we're in yesterday's clothes. I'm holding a thin, unconscious hand. Grandma, we're going to take you home. Driving back, I'm up front by myself because he wants to sit in back with her. Those chairs recline practically to beds. How to explain this car when we get to the checkpoint? We could just abandon it, walk in. If grandma's even up to the effort and catch the bus, the barricade workers use, we could try and get through. Then see if we could get fuel allotments and sell them for something they need like nursing. I save her the trip, take every scenic road like it's our last. It's certainly theirs. We pass around mountains, almost at the cloud line, terrifying and tempting driving along the cliff like this. They don't even look out the window. <clears throat> She's just lolling her head around confused. Jumping every now and then like it's one long dream of falling. He's stroking her arm, whispering to her. Is it worse than he had yesterday with her? That he was reminded? Or was it a gift? Gift is the wrong word. Since it was taken away. But isn't it all taken away? A glimpse? Maybe that's what life turns out to be. Curtains
0: open. Curtains close. Ta-da. I try again.
1: Maybe tomorrow will be better. And Grandpa smiles at me in the rear view. He pulls his chair to sitting and leans forward to tell me I drive well. That Grandma's proud of me, that they love me. He gives me a pat, then sits back, pushes the chair down again, puts his hand over hers with a loving smack, like she can feel it. It's like I'm driving them to prison. I don't see what he's done until we're at the rest stop before the beltway. My throat's gotten tight in a panic. That I'll never breathe clean air again, so I slow to open their door and ask if he wants to use the facilities or wait till we get home. Their eyes are closed and their breathing is rough. They were holding hands between the seats, but now their arms just hang down. Her purse is open on his lap, and so are three empty bottles of pills pain managers, blood thinner, and heart medicine. A restful cocktail. She chokes a little, then stops completely. I'm just watching and watching and thinking about who I could even call for help, about what little I remember of CPR, about crying, about how I'd even begin to tell anyone, but I'm just watching. Another red Zeus drives up and parks next to us, a family inside. The fat father gives me the, hey, cousin, wave you give someone who bought the same car you did. I look back at Grandpa as he stops too, as his other hand drops from his lap and lets go of a thick, rubber-banded wad of hundreds. My inheritance. I wave back at the fat father as he's handing out sandwiches to his kids in the back seat. They're not even going to get out to eat. I climb in next to grandma and grandpa and close the door. I try to move him, try to have his hand reach across to her wrist, but they're both too limp. I pocket the money. Okay. Now deep breath. I come up front, turn on the car, give the family another smile and wave as I pull out, cross the highway, turn us around. Here's what I'll do. First, find a decent place to bury them, which shouldn't be hard out here with all this endless land. Maybe bring them back to their hill, and then head west, like they wanted. Then, I'll keep going as far as the money takes me.
2: I liked it better this time. (laughs) 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 Maybe I was having a bad day, I don't know. but Or maybe it's just that uh, I listened more closely because I was aware that I didn't like it the first time.
1: I'll tell you as well, there was absolutely a difference in the way I read it this time too. Mm. Because I uh, remember the story better. and I knew what I wanted to get across. I wanted you to like it this time.
2: <laughs> well, it worked. I did like it more. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think though that the, the thing that stuck with me that made me dislike the first time still had that impact the second time. And it's really just that everyone is so hateful of each other. Mostly the grandson, since the story is told through that character's lens, but
1: he's a teen boy.
2: Uh, yeah. Is he a teen? It seems like he's, it's kind of in his early twenties or something. Is he, he hasn't finished that? school yet though. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. He's maybe. a delinquent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, there are a few things that really stood out to me. Um, thinking about why I didn't like it the first time and the different impression that I got the second time. And it's this feeling, you know, this, this kind of compulsion that I had to look for a a consistent behavior, Um, you know, and that's just to make a a characterization or a judgment um, of the narrative and of the characters, especially since it's mostly spoken uh, or or it's all from the perspective of the grandson, not a likable character, but still compelling, I guess. And, and, uh, I don't like the kind of, it seems like some of the writing is a bit lazy when it comes to the characterization of the, the kind of tribes that are operating in this, in this world that they've built.
1: Well, I think that that laziness is actually inherent in the, in the narrator's understanding. I don't think he could, I don't think mm. the writing could be more insightful because he's mm. not more insightful.
2: That's really interesting. Actually. <coughs> so it's a, it's a, a limitation of that, that is of the character that enhances the story.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much. I, I like these stories the, in this book. They're all um, dystopian stories where something, something terrible has happened and people are surviving.
2: Are they and all set in the same dystopian no, place? No,
1: they, they aren't. But it's funny because uh, the book itself, I actually didn't like when I read it. Mm. Um, I didn't talk about this with you last time, but it was one that stuck with me and that I thought about heaps. Mm. And then I've talked with other people that read a lot uh, of stuff and have read this, particularly one of my favorite old regulars from the bar. We used to work at together. Mm. Uh, this, this guy that used to come in while his son was getting a music lesson and he'd <laughs> sit in the back and drink whatever the new beer we had was and read a book. That's and nice. uh, he was an English teacher and I'd always chat with him. Uh, and he was kind of like, I look forward to seeing him at work each week. And That's I remember nice. telling him about this book. And he's like, I, I was saying, Oh, I read this. Cause he'd uh, I'd ask what he was reading and he'd always show me. And then he'd go, what have you read? And i go, oh, I've forgotten the title of it. I read this one. And he was like, yeah, oh, that sounds like things we didn't see coming. And I'm like, it was. And, uh, <laughs> and then we chatted about this book. And I think I think I remember that conversation sort of making me go, oh, I should think again whether I like this book or not. And uh, to get to the point, in this story, there's so much information given without being explicitly stated. So obviously what's happened is that the the land of Australia there has been divided up and cities are now the places for godless heathens yeah. and the country is for Christians. Yeah. And, and then it, it very loosely uh, shows the, the things available and not available to each other. So all the electronics are in the city, except yeah. for the ones that are previously bought All the technology. And then all of the food and everything like that is out of the country. And so this kid's been brought up in a, in a world where, in a society where he's of course going to look at those people as being selfish and keeping it to themselves without thinking of the side of we're keeping this other stuff to ourselves. And it's a war,
2: you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I did. uh, appreciate that a lot more this, this time listening to the story. Um, I guess I picked up on those little cues there, but I guess I was thinking of the genre a little bit more um, of post-apocalyptic or dystopian. Which I, I find really compelling. I, I do like that genre. And, and I think uh, it's really nice to engage with a narrative in that genre that is Australian, uh, which, which for me is quite rare to come across. And I was trying to think as we we're listening to that story, what ones have I, have I engaged with before in the past that I liked? And one particularly, I guess, which is... um Mad uh <laughs> Max? Mad Max, yeah. Uh, I actually didn't write Mad Max down. The first one that I wrote down was Tomorrow When the War Began. Oh,
1: fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone studies that in school. Do they still study it? I don't know.
2: I don't know. I mean, for anyone who hasn't heard of that, it's a kind of young adult teen fiction where Indonesia invades Australia, basically without being named. And uh, a bunch of... No, no,
1: it was named, I'm pretty sure. Wasn't
2: it? No, they're they're just like miscellaneous Asians. Oh, really? Yeah, miscellaneous Asians. (laughs) (laughs) which I remember reading, I, I remember that really clearly being Asian myself and, and reading that as a teenager going like, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> so, so yeah, they're not named. I, I mean, somebody maybe will correct me on that, but uh, I, I, I remember that and, and sort of getting pretty into it and thinking this is not like any of the other cultural things of this genre that I've consumed before. And I just wonder what it is about Australian settings in that genre that I like. I mean, is this something that you've thought about as well?
1: Well, it's because it's the setting you understand as well. You know, it's
2: your setting. It's not just that. There's something else about it. Maybe there's something unique. I think what it is, is that they're always a little bit folksy, you know? They're always a little bit kind of, maybe it's in the immediacy, but it's, it's like, uh, it lacks that kind of polish or shine. So when I've seen American dystopian kind of fiction or whatever, or or listened to it or whatever, it, it kind of has this like... Um, finish to it that is so different to the Australian version. Something that attracted me to this story the second time around.
1: Well, I watched, I watched a fun movie recently, actually, an Australian one called uh, Smoke Em If You Got Em. And it's a, it was a very low-budget film made in the 80s. I think it was the 80s, yeah. And it was about a nuclear, uh, nuclear warfare occurring in Australia. And then um, it's set at a house party after a bomb's gone off and everyone's just waiting for radiation poisoning to kill them. And so they're having a big house party Mm. and uh, it was great fun.
2: That reminds me of uh, um, these final hours. Great, great Australian film, pretty low budget film came out maybe mm, 2018, 2017, something like that. Haven't seen it. Uh, Really excellent. They did an American remake, which of course was not. Always goes well. <laughs> yeah highly recommend anyway so I, I guess I was thinking about the genre a little bit more this time uh and and just appreciating that it was an Australian setting for that
1: but- I really enjoyed actually this time when I was reading it I realized that I'd been relating to it recently in in light of the um of the uh coronavirus COVID-19 uh pandemic going on and just the, you know the way that people panicked buying groceries and everything and thinking about shortages of food and like that you would be obviously well off being on a rural property that could grow its own food and all that kind of thing. And the amount of the fact that real estate currently uh, is current, uh, the rich people are currently buying farm properties again. Um, Yeah. You know, but only hobby farm properties. Yeah. That's where the big, that's where the big upswing has been. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not going to actually run them. Like (laughs) when I read that. (laughs) And then my other favorite thing was that I, I had a conversation recently. It happened very quickly for me where when, when, when I was first told that I couldn't perform my livelihood as a bartender and told to stay in my house, but wasn't uh, told that I would have income in any way. Mm. And I was chatting to someone who was panicking about um, that sort of thing. And I just said, look, the government has told me that I can't perform my livelihood. So the government will either need to do something to give me income or another job. Or they'll need to change the rules so I don't have to pay rent and I get food or something like that. Mm. I said, those are the options if the government wants to behave responsibly. Of course, if they don't, I will become a criminal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so I was paying attention to this um, in the story because there was a, there's a moment in the story where a theft happens and then uh, I think my ears picked up as well because the name of, that the, of the grandson... The confused grandfather who is being stolen from is Eric, the name that we share. And then shortly after that scene, when the grandson brings the stolen goods back to his grandparents, they eat it very hesitantly. They, they're, not, they're not really enjoying their kind of joints out because they have this awareness of the stolen food. The enjoyment that they allow themselves to have only comes after they make a solid plan to steal some more. You know, it's like the... They've, they've gone out there for a tree change during the apocalypse and then, uh, and then they've gone like, well, we can get by by just stealing shit. And then, oh, I feel a little bit bad about it. But what if we stole heaps more? It's, that's okay. You
1: know, well, that's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you noticed but I, I, I find it interesting the scene when they drive into the car park of the market and they steal the other car and then he's going back to get the car and the grandpa is upset at other people for stealing from them. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. And making a scene and all that. And yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I think I was getting too tuned into that, to the idea of tribalism uh, to this idea of exclusion and hypocrisy through tribalism and exclusion. Uh, I I really was tuning far too much into that the first time listening to the story and it made me dislike everything else. It colored all my, my kind of reactions to everything else. One, one detail that I was interested in and and I wonder if you know this from, from reading more in the book or knowing about the author, is this set in an analogue or just straight out in Kyneton?
1: No, it wasn't Kyneton. It was Keaton was the something.
2: Oh, okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: so no. It's okay. is, is, is the strict answer there. <laughs> but also it's, it's set in all different locations. I can't remember exactly. I might have to read the book again.
2: So I guess the locations are kind of, they could be anywhere Australia.
1: And also, I mean, even that one, when you when you read it, it didn't have to be Australia, but it certainly made more sense as Australia.
2: It felt Australian. There was something about it that felt Australian, and maybe maybe again, you know, tuning into that negative take that I had on tribalism. I, I guess it, it kind of feels familiar to me in the travel to the rural areas and the kind of exclusion that happens there to outsiders as well. Uh, and that's something that um, maybe uh, I have a chip on my shoulder about, but. I, having grown up in the kind of outer western suburbs outside of the city, yeah. and then becoming a city person, uh, but still enjoying being able to get out of the city and doing road trips and blah blah blah. Going into small towns, um, often I'm I feel uncomfortable. I feel like a a, a real outsider and imposter, and uh, and it also connects me very quickly back to the experiences of pretty intense bigotry and racism that I I had growing up, um, but not explicitly. There's a kind of underlying tension there. It doesn't always happen. Uh, I spend a lot of time out in the Northern Territory going out bush there. Um, I've never once experienced that going out bush in, in the Territory. But in Victoria, I have. And this, this felt like a out-of-suburban, going-towards-country location in Victoria. Which is why I thought it was interesting if it was kind to.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because there's also something interesting there when the grandfather... Is um is ready to ridicule people living in uh, outer suburbs, being like, oh, they want it all, <laughs> you know? Because he's like, well, you know, we've lived in the country, we know what's good there. We lived in the city, we know what's good there. These guys want everything. You can't
2: have everything. Yeah. yeah, but that's what I mean about being so hateful. You know, it's like, um, I don't know. There's there's something, something there of being just so alienated, and and because of that, being so resentful, I can. I don't know, feel related to as well or have some experience with? Yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm. Um, So do do you think the story would be as effective if it wasn't set in Australia?
1: Oh, look, there's so many universal things coming up when we discuss it, you know, this idea that when you're looking at what other people have as compared to what you have, that there's a, you know, there's a thing there where you, you have hatred for them then. Because they're keeping it from you, even though you're keeping something from them, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, And then also, you know, I think there's something pretty, pretty uh, relatable in the idea of looking after elderly members of family. and You know, seeing the degradation in life and and that kind of thing. And especially when you're a teen kid uh, where you resent. Yeah. some parts of it, and, and then you come to an understanding of them as, as people as well, not just these sort of things called grandparents or whatever, you know?
2: Yeah, you, you discover that they are uh, they're individuals outside of the, the family roles that have been, uh, you know, there for your entire life. I, I think that's, um, that part of it I really enjoyed. It's, it's uh, presented as complex as I think it is in, in real life. And one of the, the little details that added to that complexity that I liked was that his grandmother was having maybe a little bit of a perv on him when she came out of her coma? You know.
1: Well, that's what uh, he thinks. It's a bit. I mean, that, that bit r- rang strange to me as well. But
2: but that's why I like it because it does ring strange. I guess you're right. It reinforces the um, unreliable narrator position that the narrative takes.
1: Well, it sounds like people are pretty isolated in this world as well.
2: Well, yeah, he does talk about in interest general. between brothers and sisters when he gets at the yeah. hotel as
1: well. Yeah, right? and just the the whole thing, you know, they don't actually interact with anyone but authority figures or people they're stealing from, basically. Yeah,
2: central, it doesn't know what you look like.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, when they get to the hotel, they interact with a desk clerk and that's it. Mm-hmm. That's an authority figure still. That's the person you have to pay to have a room, you know. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, on on the kind of taking care of, of uh, elderly people in your family, I mean, this is something that I've, had some experience with in my professional life working as a social support worker for elderly people uh elderly homeless people and it was um it was a hugely kind of formative experience putting my ears in with that job well you did that for a long time well yeah it it was kind of six seven years or something like that and and uh i i think the biggest one of the biggest pieces uh or one of the biggest learnings that i took from that job was that in a caring role you're doing your best with that and it doesn't mean that the person who you're caring for will thank you for it or even respond in a way that you you have a secret desire to be acknowledged for that effort and work that you put in Um, and that doesn't always translate into the reality of the relationship that you develop with the person you're caring for Mm. and it's kind of it feels dirty to think about it like that. And I really appreciated those things in this story where, you know, he resents those things. He doesn't like doing that. It's not, uh, it's not something that he's necessarily proud of, but there are these shining little moments that come through because that is the situation. And I, I maybe felt some pretty close affinity to that too.
1: Well, I think there's along those lines, I feel a bit of affinity because my, my mom's getting elderly and, um, and, and, you know, I think about what might happen if her mind goes, you know, mm. and I think about that, you know, my dad didn't see that occur.
0: Yeah.
1: And cause he was, you know, he was very much a very people person and intellectual. So having the closest person to have their mind go would be very difficult.
2: Mm. Um, I think one of the things like, comes up as well with the grandmother character uh, was this, this thing that I have a huge fear of, and that's being trapped in your own body without being able to communicate. Uh, Well, when she says she understood them that whole time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end you do wonder, is she understanding them now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the decision that I guess the, the grandfather makes to to sort of end their lives together. I, I mean, was that a moment of peace for her or not? I don't know.
1: And had they discussed that beforehand?
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Did she say, you know, if I go away again, that's it?
2: Yeah. So I guess um, I enjoyed it a lot more this time.
1: <laughs> that's great. Cool. I that noticed one connection me? between the two stories as well. Did you notice oh, yeah?
2: any? Uh, stood mm, out? I mean, no, not, not explicitly, no.
1: So the one connection I noticed is that both the narrator in the first story and the grandpa in the second one at some point, ask, do I have a choice about something? Do I have an option? Mm, mm. And for the first one, it's the, the character being asked if he wants to become a dentist. Um, and he's in this, you know, the, the thing that awaits him is this room full of teeth that he doesn't really know what the dentist is going to do to him if he says no. Mm. Um, which I've implied, actually, that the dentist says that you, uh, that you won't say anything about it. And in the first scene, there was actually two two heads with jaws ripped off, mm. which I'm trying to imply that that might happen to him, that that might be oh. the reason he can't say anything, that his jaw has been ripped off entirely. Um, oh, I,
2: just, I, didn't, I didn't get that. Yeah. It's very
1: subtle. It's mm. one that there isn't enough there to say it, but that's what I was saying, by mm. having those heads there in the corner. Um, and then in the second story, the grandpa is asking if he has a choice about whether or not he drives. And I think, I think that's an interesting thing for characters to, to think about where characters feel like they might not have a choice about something. When in reality, every action we do is our choice.
2: Mm. Maybe I should read that book again, The Trout Fishing in America. (laughs) (laughs) I should read it again first.
1: (laughs) Have you still got a copy or did you give it back to me?
2: I think I gave it back to you.
1: In disgust? Did you throw it?
2: No, I I didn't. I've only ever thrown one book that I read. Oh, what was it? It was, uh, I think it was a Murakami book. It took me so long to finish and I really disliked it at the end. Which one? I can't remember. Um, Or maybe it wasn't a Murakami one. I don't know. It was whatever the one is where at the end of it, uh, spoiler alert for this book that I don't remember the title of, uh, the main character walks out into what is probably going to be a typhoon from a garage storage place in a garden. Right, yeah. It sounds pretty Murakami. (laughs) I think it's a Murakami one, but...
1: Yeah. Is an author that actually it took me a while to get into. I, I, I don't often start books and not finish them. Like I, I start them and I will make myself finish it even if I don't like a book because I think there's something really valuable about engaging with something you don't enjoy.
2: I 100% um, agree with you. and, and uh, I mean This is I, a good I,
1: illustration on that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: there's only one book recently I haven't been able to finish uh, no matter how many times I started. And it was one written by Mark Gatiss who... I knew from The League of Gentlemen. He was uh, from the oh, British. the comic. Yeah. The British. No, no, not the comic. Oh. The, that's Grant Morrison that wrote that. Oh. Um, no, Mark Gatiss, uh, the TV show, The League of Gentlemen, which was this British uh, comedy show that was kind of horrific as well. It's one of my favourite TV shows I've ever is, seen. Is
2: that the, um, the sketch comedy show of the... You're My Wife Now? Is it that one? Uh,
1: That is, yeah, Papa Lazarou. Yeah, he's the one that runs the circus and kidnaps women. Yes. Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so one of the writers and actors in that, who is also a writer and actor for the the modern Doctor Who uh, stuff, uh, Mark Gatiss, wrote this book, The Vesuvius Club, and it's uh, this sort of thriller, Sherlock Holmes-style thing. And I hate it. I can't read it. Every time I try I've tried. I thought I'd enjoy it because, like, it's got all these people, like Stephen Fry on it, going, oh, very funny, very well and all this, you know. Uh, but I hate it. I can't finish it. Um, but Murakami, I had so much trouble reading him the first few times I tried. And then I had someone give me their favorite one. Um, and they wrote a nice inscription in the front. And I read it and I loved it, their favourite one. And I've since been able to then... It was a way to unlock reading all of his stuff.
2: Can I guess which one it was? Yes. It was it Dance Dance?
1: No. Mm. It was Hardballed Wonderland at the End of the World. Mm. Don't know it. Ah, it's really good. I'll lend it to you. Yeah,
0: that um, sounds
1: good. But that was, a, that, was, that was a good book that opened things up for me. So, uh, yeah, I do think it's really valuable, again, to engage with stuff you don't like. One, one thing for me is either you find something you do like in it or you find something you learn or you learn what you don't like and you understand it better. Uh, and like for me, when I'm reading writing, I don't like, sometimes it makes me recognize flaws in my own writing as well. And I'm like, Oh, stay away from that. You know?
2: Yeah, I I agree. I think it's, um, the creative process is a lot more complex than just creating something good or creating something bad, you know? And and I think the, the consumption of creative artifacts it's the same. It's, it's uh it's exactly that too.
1: Well, you know, I was talking before about how with the body horror that you create everything as you read. And I think that every time you, every time you read, you're actually creating the artwork yourself, you know? So it's an interesting process that's between the, the, the author and the reader or the author and the listener in this case, where there's, it's a new story each time. That you're creating each time, like right. and It's such an impermanent piece of art that's only there for that moment in your mind, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you're engaging with bad art, maybe you're creating it badly.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, that's it's entirely, I, it's entirely possible because I've definitely had that experience of revisiting something at a at a bigger scale than what we did today of uh, you know installation mm-hmm. art. Is, is something that uh, is very easy to, or performance art for me is very easy to engage with poorly and, and it can be very high quality work, but my engagement is poor. And so the, the, it diminishes the actual work in my own experience.
1: Well, that's one of my favorite quotes is from John Peel. Do you know who John Peel was? No. So he was an English radio host, very famous one. And he's, kind of just got massively eclectic taste and he was on the BBC and he would play every, every rock band from the nineties to the 2000s. If you heard them or at the eighties view, if, if, if they were a cool indie or weird rock group in any way or anything really new, he played them first. He mm. played their demo or whatever, you know, mm. he was a guy that played the white stripes before anyone played the right stripes, yeah. that kind of thing. And, um, and he had a quote that he said, which is, um, Whenever I listen to some music that I don't like, I think, what's wrong with me?
2: (laughs) And uh, maybe that's a a good way to finish up and wind up this episode of our podcast because if you didn't like it, maybe just ask yourself. (laughs) Eric! (laughs) Well, thanks
1: for listening. I hope uh, we'll have another one going soon.